Hey there, welcome to Kaleidoscope Live. We are the Kaleidoscope authors from the British Journal of Psychiatry. And as we do each month, we're going to talk through some papers that we have in the Kaleidoscope column. So we're going to kick off with COVID and ketamine this month. And I'm going to start with a paper from Lancet Psychiatry by Pan et al. on COVID and mental health. So this is clearly very topical for lots of people. And there's no doubt about COVID impacting people's well-being. So unprecedented moral injury and tsunami are the words we get with COVID all the time. And the concern is how much is it impacting people's mental health? So it impacts all our lives. We know this. It's, it's fairly obvious. Where I am in southeast London, we've definitely seen an increase in demand on services. And what's interesting for us, and we're trying to understand it, is there's been an increase in people who haven't been known to us, who haven't used services before. And so if we think about what COVID might do, it's a pressure on people. People might be worried about their health and their well-being, people around them, their physical health and mental health. People might have practical issues in their lives. They might be furloughed. They might lose their jobs. And then the resources that we tap into are not there anymore, not in the same way. So the things you like to do, if you're feeling stressed, maybe you like to go to the cinema, you like to go to the restaurants. With us, we like opera and monster truck rallies, the COVID team, the things you would do ordinarily to look after yourself. So increased pressure, decreased resources, and then services are stretched. So there's an increased push on the NHS. And what does it mean? And going back to the tsunami thing, the reason I picked this paper is there's been a lot of data. One of the most amazing statistics I saw was that by December 2020, there had been an estimated 200,000 scientific publications with COVID in it. 200,000, which is absolutely phenomenal. And I'm going to come back to it at the end of it. That makes you challenge the quality of all the 200,000. But you have attention with COVID. People want information really quickly because we've got this new pandemic, so you want to share fast. But then the tension for that maybe is the caliber of it. And my concern with the mental health part has been a lot of stuff has been surveys. People are understandably asking, how do you feel about it? And there are lots of problems with survey data. So maybe you only respond if you feel anxious or you feel upset. And what do you compare it to? So what's quite nice for me about this PAN paper, and the reason I picked it is they took a pre-existing longitudinal cohort study. So what that means is it's a group of people that have already been following up. So they've got lots of data on them for some period of time. It's a Dutch study. They've got people with depression and anxiety and OCD, and they've been tracking them over time. And they've been comparing them to healthy volunteers. So they can track any change. And what they added into their data set were some new questionnaires about how people are feeling. I'm going to pick out some headline findings and what it means to me, and then I'll pass over to the others to discuss. The, the two really major things that struck me. So one is there was an increase in concern from people who didn't have pre-existing mental health problems about their well-being, but those who already had mental health problems did not report significant increases. So that's really interesting. So those already under services. So it, in one sense, it almost tracks back to what we've seen locally in Southeast London, that it's new presentations to services. And it just makes me think that pandemic is clearly a problem for lots of people. No one's denying it. But these days are suggesting it's not hitting everyone equally. It's not causing a tsunami. Lots of people are clearly quite resilient. And another really interesting phrase for me through the pandemic has been post-traumatic growth, that people can do well with it. It's introduced the idea of inequity. So if we think about how people are doing now in the longer term, there's been issues around inequity in terms of some people are physically more vulnerable to get COVID. But if you think longer term, even post-pandemic, we're all vaccinated, hopefully, some people will lose their jobs, some people can be unemployed, some people are going to be 
lonely. And it introduces again for me the issue about the quality of some of the academic research that's coming out about COVID. And do we risk causing concern and panic unnecessarily for people with words such as tsunami? So that's my opening blitz on that. Who's got a comment on it? Right, I'm happy. I'm happy to comment. First of all, I think you don't need to worry about your tsunami of COVID-related publications because, as we know, nobody ever reads those out of those 2,000 publications. You know, the chances of anybody actually reading them is going to be pretty, pretty slim unless they make it into the kind of main newspaper kind of headlines. And there you need to have something a bit more striking. And bad news is always much more popular than good news. So actually something like the results of this paper are essentially largely uninteresting to the media. And I haven't seen it widely kind of uh, displayed anywhere. For me, there was uh, a couple of related things. One unrelated to the paper was that we had a, a lab meeting yesterday where one of our researchers presented their data looking at carers of people who suffered from autism and uh, eating disorders. And one of the things that, because the sampling frame just covered the period of, the, uh, of COVID was about what, what had happened for them. And one of the things which was counterintuitive was that people, the, the carers of, of these folks said, actually they, uh, on the positive side, lots of people, general people now understood how constrained their lives had been previously. So that people who are caring for people who are quite ill and, and need constant attention are used to being at home and not being able to go out without any kind of arrangement. So they, they felt that one thing was that people would now understand what it's like to be the carer of somebody. And kind of just following on from that, the the, the things that are discussed by the authors as to the reason why perhaps people with coexisting mental health uh, disorders are not so impacted by the actual, uh, by the COVID and the lockdown is the fact that somehow society has now synchronized to them, that they never went out very much. They didn't have routines to the same degree uh, and the desire to go out of an evening or socialize because of their illness, that their, their behavior was already constrained and somehow society now fitted them much better. And so actually you were relative to everyone else, which is our kind of way of deciding where we are. So the reason why you feel upset at any particular point is because Dan's doing so much better than you and he's so much more attractive than you and he's you know, losing weight faster than you pick any index of self-esteem uh, he's cleverer than you, you know, all of these things that it's a lot of that self-esteem is relative. So now society is now synchronized to them. So in a way, there's less difference between them and society. So therefore you're the, the kind of the very sharp contrast is no longer there. And therefore you're a little bit less stressed about the fact you're not performing uh, as well as other people. It is hard to be in the shadow of Dan. It's so true. <laughs> I do think though, actually you said a word, I'm gonna come from a really different angle, which I think might be my role, but um, you said counterintuitive. And it's really funny because why? Why hasn't this paper, which actually has cracking methods, um, it seems really robust in a bunch of ways that no one could have ever planned for, but I hope someone benefits from. Um, I think it's that it's counterintuitive. Like I imagine, 
Um, in the U.S., we always do this with presidents when they're on the way out the door. We have a picture of them before when they were starting term and they were like full of hope and beaming. And then at the end and they've aged like 25 years. And I feel like if you did the same to me and I I'm doing OK, but there would be like pre-COVID dawn and then there will be the desiccated husk that I will become by the end of this. And you will know it. And I feel it. And I think that part of the reason why we don't necessarily pick up on these messages is because no matter what, no matter how well things are going for us, there is still a baseline strain that makes it hard to pull this really positive data out. Cause you think, Oh, but you know, Oh, but I'm so stressed or, Oh, but um, X, Y, Z, this person, that person, whatever you do a bunch of relative things. So I started looking into the data when we were going to talk about this around resilience. Now with that said, it is part of the, 200,000 plus publications. But when I was just kind of digging around for like what had come out in the last in the last couple of months, one was looking for um, psychosocial factors that were associated with people who were playing resilience during this period of time. And um, to be fair, again, I think it's it's a kind of a quick and dirty survey, but it was done during peak lockdown time, which is kind of helpful. Um, and they really came away with um, the idea that if you have a positive attribution style, and the thing is, this is something that can be cultivated in people. So it's not necessarily relevant maybe today, but it could be relevant for skills to work on in the future. Um, and then the other paper I stumbled upon, which was just a great delight to me, was the idea that horror fans and the morbidly curious were doing better in all of this. <laughs> and it kind of comes back to this idea that we expose ourselves to these kinds of things. And it's quite weird, right? It is, again, counterintuitive. Um, but we we watched this up. Contagion, apparently the first few weeks of the, of the pandemic, um, the Netflix demand for Contagion was through the roof. Um, and so what they found is folks who sort of dipped their toes in that space already um, were really giving way to these theories that in fact this type of stuff is almost the equivalent of adult play where we're trying on different worlds and we're trying on um, different potential reactions to see how we would do in such circumstances those folks seem to have a leg up on resilience so that is that is my from left field contribution <laughs> I, I was going to mention books by albert Camus. We, we mix in different cultural circles but it is interesting with that the, the, which you see in war times too that the, I'm, I'm curious to see culturally i'm, I'm slightly digressing to be reminded me in the coming year or two that people then want hope and happiness so i'm curious actually if we're going to see lots of dramas and movies around good times and happiness and we'll move away from the more hmm. yeah it's interesting you bring that i was really interested in what you said Dawn, because the first thing i did in the first lockdown was dig out a copy of contagion and watch it because i thought i've never watched this movie <laughs> colleagues of mine in infectious diseases said it's probably the only really good close to bordering on the truth representation of what a pandemic would look like. So I watched it for that reason. It's very good, by the way, but it also really entertains me because I'm one of the, one of the people that in my circle that would, would comfortably say that I've not been greatly affected by lockdown. It's not something that, and, and I'm, I'm saying that with some humility in so far as I'm lucky that I haven't been affected by it. But my, uh, my collection of George Romero zombie flicks has grown substantially in the time. So maybe I'm one of those people you're talking about in that, you know, I've got inbuilt, I've got, I've got a, an a priori resilience because of my uh, hermetic lifestyle and, uh, and uh, desire to watch horror films. But um, 
the, the, the paper, yeah, I, I, I sort of share everyone's sort of slight cynicism about telling 200,000 papers in the space of what will have been about nine, 10 months is, is crazy talk. The thing that's really interesting about this paper is that they picked, like Derek was saying, a cohort of people who had robust diagnoses, followed them, reported the change. Thing, the only thing that's, that I was slightly sad that they missed out on was the point that Suki was speaking to. If they'd only included a sort of self-report clinical global impression, something that says, you know, what has changed for you on a scale of one to 10, you know, sorry, scale of one to seven, what has changed for you? Have, you know, have things changed substantially? Because I wouldn't mind betting, as Suki was pointing out, with people who are used to caring for people with long-term chronic conditions, they would say, well, not a great deal. Whereas if you could, your control group in the Dutch study was people without a diagnosis, but who filled in the same validated questionnaire. So on the assumption those questionnaires are validated for people with diagnosis, I think that probably weakens it a little bit. Having a CGI, a clinical global impression, or some analog of that where people reported an impression of whether their life had changed substantially would actually answer the question that we've all been alluding to, which is, is this a group of people with disorders that, that would have been impaired in those things that lockdown has taken away from the rest of the population? I, think, I mean, that would have been a really nice touch just to add on to the end of it. But the, 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 the sorry, I, I did have a final point, actually. The thing that, that, that Derek said was really interesting. The ONS released some statistics which got widespread media coverage. I heard it on the radio on the drive home one night. Where, where basically it was one of these awful survey designs where they phoned people up and asked them a lot of vague questions about anxiety and depression. Now, the problem with that, I'm sure that the study was well designed if the ONS did it, but it got reported in the media as, you know, 14% increase in depression. Almost as if you can just equate asking someone about symptoms of having, you know, lower than expected mood suddenly equates to a tsunami or a pandemic of clinical diagnoses. I think that's that's been... That's why this paper was refreshing, because it's actually solid clinically, I think, whereas a lot of the media headline attention grabbing stuff lacks that rigor. It's just, you know, we asked about symptoms that if you were to do a giant factor analysis of our questionnaire against a whole bunch of clinically validated questionnaires applied to a clinical population, we'd find some overlap. You know, like my sleep's not great and I feel a little bit lower in mood. That's not good enough. Do you know what I mean? And I, I get really frustrated with reporting of that as new cases of depression or new cases of anxiety disorder. I think it does a disservice to people who actually have to struggle with these things year after year. On that slightly part, that was the only thing I had to contribute. Two, two of the things struck me that while, while you guys were talking, one about the methodology, I was the peer reviewer on a paper, I don't think it's been published yet, that was calling for standards in this type of work. One of the challenges, of course, is for whenever the next pandemic might be and, and will people abide by it. So it was all well and good. It was trying to anticipate it. And the other thing that struck me a while ago, I, I'm an external reviewer on a, a research trial. I'm not involved in it, but I'm uh, involved in, in, in the ethical uh, regulation of it. And other research is being hit. One, this research trial is looking at quality of life in a, in a clinical cohort, and it's deteriorating for people. And it's deteriorating for reasons outside the control of the study. And the other thing that strikes me is other research, I don't know if you've comments on this, Suki, that about other research trials are being impacted. How do you know if there's an, if you're looking at intervention versus a, a non-intervention, how do you know what's impacting it now? So this other trial I'm thinking of, the, the quality of life and the social activity of participants has been really impacted by COVID. And I suspect COVID's going to draw a large streak through lots of research that, that, that spans it. 
There were just a couple of things that uh, occurred to me while you were talking. So the first one was uh, Dawn's Contagion. And I think it was in the newspaper yesterday that our current kind of health secretary, Matt Hancock, is very keen and used a lot of analogies to using around from contagion when he was doing his health uh, briefings to his colleagues. Uh, the second thing was around Dan's point about it's good to use these validated uh, questionnaires, but actually one of the positive things that comes out of this paper is the fact that actually, although uh, in, the, in the people who didn't have any illness at the beginning of the uh, COVID, their symptoms increased, but actually in all of those people, nobody or heart, very, very few people actually met threshold for developing a kind of clinical levels of symptoms. So actually there was an increase a bit exactly like you were saying in terms of sleep and kind of unhappiness, but it wasn't to a point where you developed a, a clinical disorder. And I guess the third thing is really around some of the patients that we're seeing who, who have a psychotic illness. And these this paper doesn't really speak to their experience because the, the samples that they're following up are actually people with depression and anxiety. And it's quite possible that in, in people who need to go out to get context to uh, their experiences, that actually not being able to go out and meet people may have a, a very different uh, effect on their well-being than to people who, are, who want to synchronize, the outside world synchronizes to them. And actually that absence of ability to kind of contextualize and socialize may have a very different effect in different illnesses. So it may not be a one size fits all for, for an effect on mental uh, well-being in, in people who already are ill. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, mean, I, I work in a psychosis service and, and the thing we, I mean, it's all very anecdotal, but it speaks to, De you know, what Derek was saying earlier, but we've seen, we didn't see a huge spike until the end of the first lockdown. And then we saw an enormous increase in referrals. And then what we've noticed is that the second lockdown has been really interesting because we've not seen, we have seen an increase in referrals, but we've actually seen a much higher rate of relapse in people that we've been working with for some time. So it's interesting how it's hard to disentangle, it's hard to unconfound whether or not these people have just been, because of the increased rate in referrals in August, these people have had less attention for their more chronic you know, maintenance treatment, or whether and then that because we haven't attended to them, they've now relapsed, or whether or not it's a second lockdown, you know, an additional non-specific psychosocial stressor around that that's provoking relapse. It's really hard to tell. Um, we, we we also did some some work on looking at our services use of you know and contacts via sort of teleworking over that time, and and really interesting. You know, again, it's all very anecdotal and, and service evaluation, but we didn't see a massive drop in satisfaction with contact. Um, I think the only part of our service that, that really noted the difference was a drop in contact for our clinical psychologists who were struggling to use. They, they weren't struggling to use that they were incompetent. <laughs> they, uh, that, that's going to bite me. That's going to bite me really bad. <laughs> it, was, it was more that people, there was a sort of lag between people being told that they would no longer be having face-to-face -face psychological interventions and deciding if they felt comfortable with the tele conferencing or televideo technique, televideo, you know what I'm saying, whether they would be comfortable continuing that treatment modality without the benefit of face-to-face. -face. So they think there was a sort of dip and then a, a return of, of contact after that. But anyway, I'm sorry, that was just anecdotal, but I think it speaks to the kind of the power of this paper, which is actually talking about a clinical population and the impacts is, 
there's more concrete there. There's more things to uh, stand on and more things that I think sort of positively and usefully contribute to clinical practice and, and the design of services around this pandemic. And it also lends itself to continued follow-up because it's, it's a data set that continues to be collected. And of course, again, we think about post-infection and po but the, the, the social outcomes of, of COVID are going to endure for some time. Okay, so our second paper is on a treatment, an intervention. So ketamine, which was an anesthetic, is it's still used as an anesthetic, is also used as a drug of abuse. It's a dissociative and now has been seen to have novel potential as a rapidly acting pharmacologically unique antidepressants. So I think Dawn is going to talk to us about a paper from Nature. Yes, please. So I'm actually really excited to talk to you guys in particular about ketamine, because um, if you come with me in the way back machine to when I was a, a wee undergrad, I was working in a psychopharmacology lab and I was working specifically on projects with NMDA receptor antagonists. So at that period of time, um, we knew the history of ketamine, which is very similar to fencyclidine, um, came about 1960. Uh, it was an anesthetic, right? Because it's got these sort of amnesic properties and these analgesic properties. Hits widespread abuse, handful, five-ish years later. Um, and, and ultimately we find out it's got this incredibly interesting set of characteristics. So we call it saccato um, mimetic. So it, it effectively will mimic um, positive and negative um, psychosis type symptoms. And so you've got this really interesting drug, powerful, obviously, um, working on a beautifully complicated receptor, which is intimated in such sort of really important and central processes like synaptic plasticity, learning and memory, pain, right? All of this really big stuff. And cool, I'm interested, right? Let's, let's dig in. And if you could have told that young woman that I would be talking to you about a paper where it is being used as an antidepressant, I mean, just mind blown. And so what I'm hoping before we start this paper is that you can fill me in on the last 20 years. How the heck has this happened? Tell me everything. Thanks for doing that to us. This is your paper. You're the one meant to be lecturing us. I'll tell you my quick thoughts on Casamine. I mean, it's really interesting. So it's interesting in lots of ways. So one is it's doing something different. So so our antidepressants today typically work on neurotransmitters in the brain, serotonin, noradrenaline, most of them. And this is definitely doing something else. So that's interesting of itself. And you're going to tell us later on exactly what it does. It seems to work really, really quickly. And that looks really interesting too. But the thing that strikes me in terms of clinical practice is we've used the phrase in Kaleidoscope quite a bit, or at least I've put it in when Suki hasn't deleted it out of the depressions. So depression may be not being a single thing. And so the thing that interests me is the effectiveness data. And my take on that is that's still up for debate. So it looks really interesting. It's really positive stuff coming through. It's early days in terms of longer term outcomes. The question for me with any pharmacological agent, well, any treatment psychological as well, is in whom does it work and when? So who might this be a really useful treatment? When might we use it? Ketamine, the licensing is varying. So at the UK, it's still, it's still being reviewed in the UK. It's just got European licensing. It will be expensive. But then as a clinician, the thing I think is the, the most expensive thing from a health economics point of view is someone who's not well. So if it works for someone, it's cost effective. Well, 
when might we use it? That's the thing that really interests me. So it's really, really interesting. I'd like more data on the effectiveness outcomes of it. And, and then it, the, the question for me is, when might I use this? Who might I use it in? And that part I, I still feel uns- unsure about. I think for me, it's this idea that we've got this this drug that is, as you mentioned, sort of radically different in terms of how it works, um, which is a benefit and also a great mystery. So we've got um, a receptor system that is just largely uh, completely outside of what we would consider to be a good target for mental health (laughs) in general. And we know that it can have really sort of detrimental effects as well. But it seems that um, in cases of treatment refractory depression, this provides a really rapid and long lasting in comparison to the the sort of serotonergic um, mechanism stuff that we have right now. So it's, it's a really interesting thing, but the thing is, nobody was quite sure how it worked um and and you know that's this is very much a lab bench paper right and so that's why i want to bring it to you guys because i think oftentimes it's really hard to see the kind of direct translation from a proper bench paper up to your your daily gig and and i want to talk about that space because we knew from human postmortem studies that um there was a decrease in activation in this major signaling pathway called mTOR C1, which is neither here nor there. It does a ton of stuff. So you kind of go, okay, and then you move on. Um, But then they were able to take a look uh, using some some sort of brain slice stuff. And they were able to say, oh, well, actually, we see these these, um, impacts in the areas of brain, the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus that we know are associated with this. And so it's definitely part of this antidepressant um, picture for ketamine. And what this paper did um, was really, I thought it was a great triangulation of techniques. They really kind of covered all their bases. So they they said, right, okay, what are the possible downstream impacts of this mTOR C1? And there's these um, eukaryotic initiating binding proteins. And one and two is what we'll call them. It doesn't, it, it's not even directly relevant. You can read the paper, but the point is that these guys are actually the sort of key. So when you impact them, you change translation, mRNA translation, which ultimately builds proteins, does work, um, and is how we make things happen. And so what they did was they used mice, so fair enough mice, but they first just did some basic immunohistochemistry. So do these things that we suspect are part of this process, do they exist in the right cells in the right places? And they did. Um, They were able to isolate them to excitatory and inhibitory neurons and they looked PFC and hippocampus. Um, After that, they did some really great stuff with some just knockouts. So they only knocked out one, only knocked out two, um, had some wild type, and they ran them through a whole series of behavioral tests, which are known to show sort of depression analogs. And they were able to show that um, you couldn't get the effects, right? It was was necessary. The the presence of of one and two were necessary for the antidepressant effects of uh, ketamine. And when you had that, you got quick, like within one hour response, and it was sustained. They only tested up to seven days, but um, far beyond what you saw with uh, basic serotonergic um, SSRI. So they did that. They did some um, uh, electrophys to double check that in fact, this was completely connected to uh, ketamine's ability to induce synaptoplasticity, which we think is really where that long-term change comes from and sticks with. So they piece these things together really beautifully and they deliver what I think is a, a very clear declaration that in fact, 
BP1, BP2 are absolutely necessary and likely the key action point for the antidepressant effects of ketamine. Um, and again, protein synthesis, not normally what we would talk about here. However, you've got a lot of baggage with ketamine. You've got cost, which is sort of something that could probably go away in a while, but you've got the really unpleasant side effects. You've got the abuse liability and you've got all the, all the nasty bits, right? That make everybody go, ketamine. Um, and in fact, if you can find out where is this leverage point, where is this sort of ratchet, you can design. And so I, I like to look for papers with hope. And for me, this is about hope. It's about a purposeful creation of a really unique category of drug that could possess the antidepressant properties for treatment resistant folks that ketamine does, but can hold, like wholly go around the problematic aspects. I'm sure someone's working on it now. Derek, this is, this is a question directed at you following on from what Dawn was saying. Um, when it's used as a substance of abuse, is there a habituation or a tolerance? Yeah, and so this is the, con the concern with, of course, it's, it's used, uh, the dosing is, is very, very different. But this, this is the, the, a concern with this as a medication. Is, is there a dependency problem for people? Yeah, I mean, I wonder also not not just in terms of uh, tolerance, habituation for dependence, but also tolerance, which means that loss of effect. It becomes yeah. yeah, it loses its effectiveness after repeat administrations. And the, the treatment protocols, as I, I have to double check what they are again. This is they're over a, sh a shorter period of time, but of course, that's not how we typically pharmacologically manage depression. And so, what we don't have at the moment is we don't have data over people on medication for two, three years, but, but many people on antidepressants will be on them two, three years. And that's the other thing for me that's interesting in terms of thinking. So if we take that this has therapeutic value, again, it goes back to the question of when and in whom. So there's another argument that maybe it's, it's a medication that might be used for some people at an early stage of depression, whilst then instigating other interventions. So, so let's go with a model that say it only works in the shorter term, but it's very rapid acting well that would be a very very useful intervention to have and that is potentially life-saving for many people and in fact that's something we really don't have now we, we have the opposite in a sense we're often faced with a situation talking to people about medication where we have to caution that its effect might take some time so that's the, the, the parts to go back to your point is so one I, I don't think we have the data on what's going to happen longer term so is it going to be in the future that it's going to where, where will its niche lie if it has value is it shorter term for people? Is it in, because the other thing too is when they take on treatment refractory individuals, like that's really helpful and useful to look at. But one of the things, unfortunately, we know pharmacologically that the biggest predictor of failure is past failure and in other interventions. And maybe there should be more research looking at, at people who it's first episode. But that's kind of contrary to the current model of how we, we do research and, and investigation on pharmacological agents. It's often on treatment people have been resistant to other interventions. So I'm still not sure where it's going to lie on a, on a, as part of a tool that we use. I think another group I thought would be interesting to try, I mean, given our, you know, the paradoxical use of benzodiazepines for stuporous catatonic patients, I just wondered whether or not ketamine might have a role in that as well. I mean, it's, you know, 
a bit of Gladwellian thinking, i.e. if it's counterintuitive, it must be right. <laughs> but it would be interesting to see whether it had a role in that, particularly if the underlying driving affective process was a severe depression. There's also earlier data which has looked at it. So it reduced in suicidal thinking in some people that seems to be outside its antidepressant effect. And again, that would be an incredibly useful and life-saving thing potentially for some people. So we could see another intervention stream where it's, it's not just for depression per se, but people who are, who are feeling suicidal. I guess one of the things that uh, you both kind of discussed is, A, that in, even in the paper, they uh, actually, it's robust enough that they try and test with a uh, fluoxetine has some of the effects that you see with the ketamine and they demonstrate that it doesn't. So in a way, it's really interesting that it is a completely kind of, it's offering a new mechanism. So in itself, I think that's interesting because that then supports Dawn's idea that by understanding the mechanistic pathway, you can start developing other interventions which may be useful. Uh, and if they'd found that actually you could replicate the effects with, with fluoxetine, it would have been slightly less interesting. And the other thing from the kind of psychosis end is that for a long time, we've been using ketamine as a, as a kind of experimental probe to try and understand the mechanism underlying psychosis. And the story has been that if you give ketamine, you, you simulate psychotic symptoms and some of the things that they describe are actually uh, you know, increased cognitive impairment and kind of negative symptoms, which can often overlap to some degree with kind of depressive elements. So giving ketamine in, in that environment seemed to be almost simulating depression. So I, I guess there's a few other questions which are worth thinking about because that doesn't seem to come out in the trials of ketamine that it doesn't seem to be pro-psychotic in, in, in the folk. Otherwise it would have had a few more regulatory uh, issues. But when I read the paper and it talks about the impact of ketamine and its disinhibition effect on pyramidal cells working through these uh, fast-firing pulvalmin positive GABAergic interneurons, that's the same pathway that's supposed to be uh, the underlying kind of uh, underlying process for developing psychotic symptoms. So why it doesn't have that is also an interesting uh, question for me because it's not quite clear. But I really share Dawn's uh, kind of enthusiasm for the fact that using these multiple techniques to try and answer a question is so is such a superior way of trying to address something, being able to look at the mechanism of it and using genes, uh, electrochemistry, electrophysiology, plus a kind of pharmacological probe, plus the understanding the actual kind of sequencing that's going on in terms of developing these proteins or building the proteins. That it seems to be, if we can link that kind of a bit more upstream to the, the people to answer your question about who responds and who doesn't respond, I think that will almost kind of complete the cycle. And it really encourages this way of thinking about how these different systems impact on each other. So we're interested in behavior, which is the kind of depression phenotype that you feel sad and you affects your sleep and appetite and you feel hopeless, which is quite a kind of high order uh, end result of something that Dawn's describing as happening practically at an intracellular level and building uh, changes within cellular, cellular 
synaptic plasticity. So tying these levels together, you need one or two additional steps to kind of understand how these are going to fit together. So Suki, what you're saying is that, that you've got multiple levels, but you've got an explanatory gap between the cell physiology and the, um, the behavioral phenotype, if you like. And then of course you've got the, you've also got multiple levels of explanation across species, right? <laughs> in mice, always in mice. <laughs> yeah. in well, things are looking good for mice. Okay, fantastic. So there are two papers there. So COVID and Casamine, the links will be on the website. Thank you for joining us. Hope we see you soon.